Hello. We don't have a regular show for you tonight, but rather than just going dark till we return in May, we're providing a bit of alternative programming. It's a sample of the short bonus episodes we offer every month to our Patreon supporters. The uh, format, as you'll see, is different, but the feel is the same. April 30th of this year marks the third anniversary of Bone and Sickle Podcast, which gave us just enough of an excuse to take the night off. We want to thank all our listeners, uh, people who've left reviews, subscribed, shared, tweeted, blurb, bought the shirt, and blathered on about our show to friends, and especially those who've offered some financial support on Patreon. You've all made possible over 46 hours of Bone and Sickle programming thus far, which we've been delighted to provide and will continue to provide as long as you're there. Anyway, on to the program. Welcome to our fourth episode of Marvelous and Rare Antiquarian Circle. We offer this show exclusively to Patreon subscribers, so thank you for the support that makes Bone and Sickle possible. These short episodes consist exclusively of readings from rare books from the shelves of our library here. Today, we'll be hearing again from a book from 1859 by eccentric encyclopedist Edmund Fillingham King called 10,000 Wonderful Things Comprising the Marvelous and Rare, Odd, Curious, Quaint, Eccentric, and Extraordinary in All Ages and Nations in Art, Nature, and Science. I believe this will be the last installment from this particular book, as I've skimmed off the very best it has to offer. Not all 10,000 of the things are quite marvelous and rare enough to make for the show you, our dear patrons, deserve. So, let's get started. Spiders Fond of Music Spiders hear with great acuteness and it is affirmed that they are attracted to music. De Jeanville relates the instance of a spider which was said to place itself on the ceiling of a room over the spot where a lady played the harp, and which followed her if she removed to another room. And he also says that the celebrated violinist, Berthomme, when a boy, saw a spider habitually approach him as soon as he began to play, and which eventually became so familiar that it would fix itself on his desk and on his arm. Bettina notices the same effect with guitar on a spider which accidentally crossed over it as she was playing. The next one, I believe, is a place that used to be in London. Jenny's Whim. This was the name of a tea garden situated after passing over a wooden bridge on the left, previous to entering the long avenue, the coachway, to where Ranelagh once stood. This place was much frequented, its novelty being an inducement to allure the curious by its amusing deceptions, particularly on their first appearance there. Here was a large garden, in different parts of which were recesses, and if treading on a spring, taking you by surprise, up started different figures, some ugly enough to frighten you. A harlequin, a mother Shipton, or some terrific animal. In a large piece of water facing the tea alcoves, 
large fish or mermaids were showing themselves above the surface. This queer spectacle was first created by a famous mechanic who had been employed at one of the winter theaters. Horace Walpole more than once alludes to this place of entertainment in his letters, and in 1755 a satirical tract appeared entitled Jenny's Whim, or A Sure Guide to the Nobility, Gentry, and Other Eminent Persons in This Metropolis. And uh, now we have uh, an extraordinary instance of credulity. To the honor of the lords of the creation, there are some husbands who so grieve at the death of their partners that they will not part with them when actually dead, and even go so far as to wish and try hard for their resurrection. Witness Sir John Prize of Newton, Montgomeryshire, who married three wives and kept the first two, who had died, in his room, one on each side of his bed. His third lady, however, declined the honor of his hand till her defunct rivals were committed to their proper place. Sir John was a gentleman of strange singularities. During the season of miracles worked by Bridget Bostock of Cheshire, who healed all diseases by prayer, faith, and an application of spittle during her fasts, multitudes resorted to her from all parts and kept her salivary glands in full employ. Sir John, with a high spirit of enthusiasm, wrote to this wonderful woman to ask that she visit at Newton Hall in order to restore him his third and favorite wife, above mentioned, now dead. His uh, letter of 1748 will best tell the foundation on which he built his strange hope and very uncommon request. And the letter is included. Madam, having received information by repeated advices, both public and private, that you have, of late, performed many wonderful cures, even where the best physicians have failed, and that the means used appear to be very inadequate to the effects produced, I cannot but look upon you as an extraordinary and highly favored person. And why may not the same most merciful God who enables you to restore sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and strength to the lame, also enable you to raise the dead to life? Beloved, who was to my children an excellent stepmother and our acquaintances a very dear and valuable friend, you will lay us all under the highest obligations, and I earnestly entreat you, for God Almighty's sake, that you will put up your petitions to the throne of grace on behalf that the deceased may be restored to us, and the late Dame Eleanor Prize be raised from the dead. If your personal attendance appears to you to be necessary, I will send you coach and six with proper servants to wait on you hither, whenever you please to appoint. Recompense of any kind that you could propose would be made with the utmost gratitude. I am, Madam, your obedient servant. And uh, let's see, another one about animals, but not spiders. This one's more heartwarming. Communication between animals. The means by which animals contrive to communicate their ideas to each other is a phenomenon which has never been satisfactorily explained. The two following instances of it are very curious. A gentleman who was in the habit of occasionally visiting London from a distant county performed the journey on horseback accompanied by a favorite little terrier dog, which he left at an inn at some distance from London till his return. 
On one occasion, on calling for his dog, the landlady told him that it was lost. It had had a quarrel with a great house dog and had been so worried and bent that it was thought he would never recover. But at the end of a few days, he crawled out of the yard and no one saw him for almost a week. When he returned with another dog, bigger than his enemy, on whom they both fell and nearly destroyed him. This dog had actually traveled to his own home at Whitmer in Staffordshire and coaxed away the great dog in question which followed him to St. Albans to assist in avenging the injury of its friend. The following story is related of a little spaniel which had been found lame by a surgeon at Leeds. He carried the poor animal home, bandaged up the leg, and after two or three days turned him out. The dog returned to the surgeon's home every morning till his leg was perfectly well. At the end of several months, the spaniel again presented himself in company with another dog, which had also been lamed, and he intimated, as well as piteous and intelligent looks could, that similar favors should be bestowed upon his friend. The combination of ideas in this case, growing out of the recollection of his own injury after referring that to the cure which had been performed, the compassion he had for his friend is as extraordinary a piece of sagacity as can be found in all the annals of the animal kingdom. Let's see here. Our next one is uh, Unruly Prophets. William Hackett, a fanatic of the 16th century, after a very ill life, turned prophet and signified the desolation of England. He prophesied at York and at Lincoln, where, for his boldness, he was whipped publicly and condemned to be banished. He had an extraordinary fluency of speech and much assurance in his prayers, for he said that if all England should pray for rain and he should pray to the contrary, it should not rain. Hackett had two brothers, prophets were joined with him, Edward Coppinger named the prophet of mercy, and Henry Arthington, the prophet of judgment. Coppinger, the merciful prophet, declared that Hackett was the sole monarch of Europe coronated according to these beliefs on July 16, 1592. On the 28th of the same month, however, the monarch of the whole earth, who had also impersonated divinity, was hanged and quartered. Coppinger starved himself in prison and Arthington was pardoned. Fitzsimmon relates that in a quarrel Hackett had at Oundle, he threw down his adversary and bit off his nose, and instead of returning it to the surgeon, who intended to set it on again, while the wound was fresh, ate it. Hackett, on the scaffold, made a blasphemous prayer, which is recorded by Fitzsimmon and Camden, too horrid to be repeated. He hated Queen Elizabeth and tried to deprive her of her crown. He confessed to the judges that he had stabbed the effigies of this princess to the heart with an iron pin, and a little before he was hanged, being an accomplished swearer, he cursed her with all manner of imprecations. Down Among the Dead Men. The following is an extraordinary instance of the recklessness of sailors when in pursuit of what they call pleasure. In the year 1779, a Mr. Constable Woolwich, passing through the churchyard there at midnight, heard people singing jovially. 
At first, he thought they were in the church, but the doors were locked and it was all silent there. Looking about, he found some drunken sailors who had got into a large family vault and were regaling with bread, cheese, tobacco, and strong beer. They belonged to the man of war, the robust, and having resolved to spend a jolly night on shore, had kept it up in a neighboring alehouse till the landlord turned them out, and then they came here to finish their evening. They had opened some of the coffins in their daredevil drunkenness and crammed the mouth of one of the bodies with bread and cheese and beer. Constable, with much difficulty, prevailed on them to return to the ship. On their way, one fell down in the mud and was suffocated, as much from the drunkenness as the real danger. His comrades took him on their shoulders and carried him back to sleep in company with the honest gentleman with whom he had passed the evening. Next one, uh, yes. Unaccountable Antipathies. The following are a few of the more striking manifestations of that unaccountable feeling of antipathy to certain objects to which so many persons are subject, and with instances of it which, in a modified form, perhaps most people are acquainted with. Erasmus, though a native of Rotterdam, had such an aversion to fish that the smell of it threw him into a fever. Ambrose Parr mentions a gentleman who never could see an eel without fainting. There is an account of another gentleman who would fall into convulsions at the sight of a carp. A lady, a native of France, always fainted on seeing boiled lobsters. Another person from the same country experienced the same inconvenience with the odor of jonquils or tuberoses. Joseph Scaliger and Peter Abano could never drink milk. Hardon was particularly disgusted at the sight of eggs. Vladislav, king of Poland, could not bear to see apples. If an apple was shown to Chesney, secretary of Francis I, he bled at the nose. A gentleman in the court of Emperor Ferdinand would bleed at the nose on hearing the mewing of a cat, however great the distance might be from him. Henry III of France could never sit in a room with a cat. The Duke of Schoenberg had the same aversion. Monsieur de Lanker gave an account of a very sensible man who was so terrified at seeing a hedgehog that for two years he imagined his bowels were gnawed by one such animal. The same author was intimate with a very brave officer who was so terrified at the sight of a mouse that he never dared to look at one unless he had a sword in hand. Wangheim, a great huntsman in Hanover, would faint or, if he had sufficient time, would run away at the sight of a roasted pig. John Roll, a gentleman in Akatara, would swoon at hearing the word wool pronounced, although his cloak was woolen. The philosophical Boyle could not conquer a strong aversion to the sound of water running through a pipe. La Motte de la Voyée could not endure the sound of musical instruments, though he experienced a lively pleasure whenever it thundered. The author of The Turkish Spy tells us that he would rather encounter a lion in the desert of Arabia, provided he had but a sword in hand, than feel a spider crawling on him in the dark. He observes that there is no reason to be given for these secret dislikes. He humorously attributes them to the doctrine of the transmigration of the soul, and supposed he himself had been a fly before he came into his body, and that, having been frequently persecuted by spiders, he still retained the dread of his old enemy.
And with that, we'll switch from books to recordings to close our little show. A bit of music from our collections. We've been enjoying a number of songs from Britain's Leslie Saroni over the last episodes, but I'd like to provide a little American representation now with a song from that incomparable king of the novelty song of the 40s and 50s, Spike Jones. I leave you with the sweet sounds and sentiments of Never Hit Your Grandma With a Shovel. your grandma with a shovel it makes a bad impression on her mind mind. in a better way impart all the love things in your heart for it's possible she may retort in kind remember granny's known you since a baby and even though in fun would prove a shock shock. so respect her aged head stay the shovel and instead paste your dear old sweet old grandma with a A grandma with her grandchild sat by the kitchen door of a quaint old-fashioned house built long ago. The little lass grew restless as on the evening war, for she felt the time was fleeting very slow. I must do something, cried the girl, and seized a nearby spade. But a passing stranger blocked her swing Whilst these wise words he said Oh, never hit your grandma with a shovel It makes a bad impression on her mind In a better way impart all the love things in your heart For it's possible she may retort in kind Remember Granny's known you since a baby And even though in fun would prove a shock Prove a shock So respect her aged head Stay the shovel and instead Paste your dear old sweet old grandma with all